other three of us think so. That's good. That's encouraging. If you have your Bible, would you turn to Exodus chapter 3? And as you're turning, let me just set the message up. Over the last wee while, I don't know about you, but we've been sensing that there has been a, a kind of increase in the intensity of the presence of God amongst us as we've gathered together and began to worship together. And in many senses, there have been moments where we have hosted what we believe to be something of glory. Moments when it's not Holy Spirit fun time, and we're okay with that, we love that. But more so moments when there has been a heaviness of His presence, and where we've not really been able to do much but just worship, adore, and be in His presence together. I don't know if you've picked up on some of that. And really what we're seeking to do just now is to kind of discern what God is doing, discern what God is saying, and, and, and hear what he's, he's speaking to us at the moment in relation to that. And this morning we steer into this passage, don't know how long we're going to be in this passage. It's been one that have been kind of visiting over the past number of weeks to try and figure out what God is saying to us. But very much as we approach it this morning, we're looking at how we can learn to posture ourselves in the moments when God comes close and God comes near. So let's turn to Exodus 3, and we're going to read from verse 1 to 6. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why this bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, and the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. To understand these verses properly, we actually have to read the verses immediately before it. So if you have your Bible, just slip back, or if you've got it on your phone, just swipe right. Um, and we're coming back to Exodus 2 and to verse 23. And it says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And interestingly, this is the passage that Lee preached from last night with the young people. Here's the backstory. The backstory is that the Israelites, that is the descendants of Jacob, have ended up in Egypt. A famine, as we know, spread through the land and that saw them up sticks and moved to Egypt where there was food and where there was provision and they settled there. But over a period of time, the people saw a turn in their fortune with a change in the Pharaoh king. And with a change in the Pharaoh king, they watched as providence turned into persecution. And the Israelites begin to have a really rough time in Egypt. And as God gets ready to turn the page on that and to begin a whole new chapter, which is what he is doing in Exodus chapter 3, it's almost as though the writer of Exodus, before he turns the, the narrative, the chapter, into what God's about to do, he summarizes the previous season. 
as he introduces the next one. And the summary is these verses in Exodus 2, 23 to 25, and the summary is this. The Israelites have been enslaved by the Egyptians. They have been badly treated, and they cry out within their injustice. They begin to speak and lament and put voice to the injustice that they are living within. And the Bible says their cry was heard by God. God heard their pain. He heard their sorrow. One translation describes God hearing the sigh of the people, which is a really good translation from the original Hebrew because what God heard was the people expressing the weight of what they were carrying and the weight of what they were enduring. And this rose to God, and the Scripture says He heard them. Now, again, the Hebrew word that is used here to describe God hearing their cry, it means to listen and to listen attentively. But actually, it's not just that God hears and turns His attention because this listening attentively also carries the meaning of attending. So God didn't just hear their cry. His attention wasn't just drawn to their cry, but He attended it. He was in attendance. He, he got to work. And I guess the best way to understand that is like when there's a, an accident or an emergency situation and we, we raise a call for help, we tend to say that the police were in attendance or the emergency services were in attendance. They were attentive to that call for help, not just that they acknowledged that there was something going on, a crisis, but they responded with their presence. And that's how we can understand what's happening here is that it's not just that God heard and acknowledged that there was a situation, but actually, according to this summary, God was in attendance. He responded with His presence. And what's really interesting when we look at this is that these verses don't suggest to us that the Israelites calling out, that they were calling out to God. The inference is there, but it doesn't directly say that. And Ezekiel tells us that during the period that the Israelites lived within Egypt, spanning over 400 years, that they began to adopt the practices of the Egyptians in terms of worshipping false gods and worshipping false idols. So it's not an entirely unreasonable conclusion to say that it's possible that their groanings weren't coming out of a place of intense prayer or of earnest supplication to God. But even so, God heard. And God attended their cries. He began to act. And the scripture says he remembered his covenant. And again, it's not that it's as though in that moment he suddenly remembered that he had forgot. But rather the wording that's used here is that he began to direct his attention to keeping his promise. He began to act to put into practice or to put into action that which he's promised. I think the message translation of the Bible describes this brilliantly. And it says, many years later, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. The cries for relief from their hard labor ascended to God. God listened to their groanings. God remembered his covenant. God saw what was going on with Israel. God understood. I think that's beautiful. And you know, this is so encouraging to know that God hears the cries of hearts. Whether we're engaging in earnest prayer or just venting our desperation, expressing our pain, or just sighing under the weight of what we're carrying and enduring, God hears it. He sees it. He knows it. And not only that, but He attends it. 
He attends the cries of our hearts and our spirits. He gets to work because he cares and he is faithful. He is a good God and we can trust him. Amen? Good. We're getting there. So, the writer of Exodus kind of brings all this together in a summary and we read it in two separate chapters, but let's put it together to get it properly. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant. He looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led them to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The language that's used here is really important. The author opens chapter three with the word now. And this is without a doubt a bit of storytelling tactics that's been put in place here. This is joining what has just been described with what is about to be described. It's almost as though the writer is saying, right, here is the background story. And now that you know that, let me give you the big story. Here's the info I need you to know so that you can understand what I'm about to tell you. And with that background knowledge, let's get to the juicy stuff. Let's get to the good stuff. And what this has shown us is that we can't read Exodus 3 without Exodus 2. And the wording is hugely important. The author tells us in Exodus 2, here's what happened during a long period of time. But then as he comes into Exodus 3, he says, and here is what is happening now. He closes off one chapter by describing two as a period of time, and he opens the next chapter by describing a now moment. And there is much about the burning bush story that is describing a now moment, a suddenly, an impromptu, an in-the-moment moment. There's the suddenness of a bush on fire. There's a voice suddenly calling out from within the bush. There's instructions and commands and calls and purposes and revelations and encounters that all carry a now dimension. Set my people free. I am sending you. Go. Here is who I am. Here is what I'm calling you to do. Now, 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 now. There's loads of now dimensions to that. And God occupies this moment with Moses, and Moses occupies this moment with God, and it's very much a now moment. Exodus 2 describes a historical situation. It describes what happens over a long period of time. This is years, perhaps decades, maybe even longer, been described in these few sentences. But in Exodus 3, we're told about what happens in one moment in time. And you know what? There are times when God works through a process, and there's times when God works in an instant. There are times when God journeys with us, when he delays, when he holds back. There's times when he takes his time I get really frustrated with those moments. There's times when he takes his time. And then there's times when the suddenlies of God begin to happen. Suddenly the angel of the Lord appeared. Suddenly the glory lit up the hillside. Suddenly there came the sound like the blowing of a violent wind. And what we see in the verses in Exodus 2 and in Exodus 3 is that in both the long period of time and the instant now moment, God was at work in both timescales. There is no particular method of choice forgot. Both the long period of time and the instant now moment, both of them carry the activity of God. He is at work and in present in the long period. He is hearing. He is attentive. He is attending, even actioning purpose. It's almost as though as the cries are going up, God is already attending that. He's already moving the people about, sorting things out, raising Moses up at the right moment at the right time, positioning him where he needs to be. He's active and attending during that long period of time. And he's at work in this 
instant as he fills the wilderness bush with his glory. And the interesting thing is that both of these things are linked. The now moment that Moses experiences with God, with the revelations, the commands, the manifestations, the purpose, that is actually the result of and the response to the long period of time that the Israelites were crying out to God. Because there's times when God works through a process and there's times when he works in an instant. And I guess what we learn from Moses is how to position ourselves in the now moment. Because it seems that in the suddenly now moments of God, when God begins to respond to the process, it's almost as though in the suddenly moments and the now moments that they become a catalyst for purpose. So if we are in a season right now when as a church and as individuals we are sensing the particular nearness of God and we're sensing the visitations of His presence and His glory, it's really important that we learn how to position ourselves, how to posture ourselves in these catalyst moments so that we can be what He's calling us to be and do what He's calling us to do. Amen? So as we lean into these verses, we begin to learn about posture. And as we lean into them... we we have to recognize the significant parallel that's here. Exodus 2 describes a people enslaved within a culture that is far from God. And the answer is that God's going to act. He's going to move. He's going to display His presence, His power, and His glory. And in doing so, He's going to call a people to Himself and establish them as His own. And in fact, Scripture refers to this nation that He calls to Himself and He covenants with. He, he, he calls them His bride at some points. He calls them a kingdom of priests. He calls them the vehicle of purpose and blessing upon the face of the earth. And when we hear that, it just reminds us of similar language that is used in the New Testament to describe the church. This is a foreshadow church. This is the prototype, if you like. This is a prophetic image of the church of Jesus Christ. This has prophetic imagery and prophetic metaphor all over it. And it's easy then to draw the parallel from what we're reading here to the times in which we live and therefore begin to hear God's heart for our generation. We live in a generation and in a time that is enslaved within a culture that is far from great. James spoke about this last week, about drowning in culture. And we know that right now, all across our city, all across our nation, all across the nations of the world, the cries of hearts, the vents of desperation, and the expression of pain rises before God. And He hears. And He sees. And He knows. And He's attentive to their cries. And just like we read in the story of Exodus, we believe that God is going to answer these cries. He's going to act. He's going to move. He's going to display His presence, His power, and His glory. And in doing so, He's going to draw people to Himself and establish them as His own. Because that is what we call salvation. That's what God does in salvation. And when we look through the pages of Scripture and we look through the annals of history, we see this pattern emerging. It can take various shapes and shades, different expressions and outworkings, but the pattern is the same. There is a period of crying out, a period of perceived inactivity in relation to God, and then there comes this breaking in, this revelation, a display of glory, a triumphant move of God. There's a burning bush or a, a cloud of glory in the temple or a baby in a manger or a, a Pentecost or an outpouring or a reformation or a renewal or, or a revival. 
A moment, a season, a period in which God invades the now moments of a generation as a catalyst for purpose. And if there is a chance that we are living in such a moment right now, then we must, we have to, we need to learn to position ourselves within that moment to be part of what he's going to do. And I'll hold my hands up if I'm wrong about this and say sorry, but I really do believe that we are entering such a time and moment right now and that there is something upon us as a people and there is something upon us as a church that we are called to steward for him. And we have to learn then to live in the now moments of God, the the suddenly breaking in moments of God and the instant when his glory comes near and his glory and his presence is found. And the first thing that we have to learn about such moments is that they are his moments and they're not our moments. When we steer into Exodus 3, we essentially read Moses' big moment when he's called into ministry. This encounter takes place and it sets him up and it sets the tone of his entire ministry. And the really incredible thing about this is that this significant life-altering encounter is one that, according to the passage, Moses just happened upon. That's quite profound. The burning bush, the holy ground, the glory of God, the presence of the pre-incarnate Jesus, which will come to us, is something that he just happened upon. Something that he stumbled into almost. There is zero intentionality on Moses' part that brought this to pass. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't be intentional in our pursuit of Christ, but what it does mean is that the now moments of God with glory and revelations and purpose, they are his moments. They can't be manufactured. They can't be controlled. They can't be manipulated. They are moments, seasons, and situations that he is in control of, and they are his. They belong to him. And that's an interesting thought because when we read this Moses encounter with God, we we read this as Moses encountering God, but the encounter didn't belong to Moses, it belonged to God. He came and encountered Moses. He came and brought Moses into the encounter. This is his moment. Moses is tending the sheep. The story goes, he leads them towards pasture. He comes to Horeb, which is described to us as the mountain of God. And an interesting but worthwhile side note here is that this description of Horeb as the mountain of God was most likely added at the point that this was written to help identify the mountain that was being referred to. In other words, it wasn't called the mountain of God at the point that Moses had his burning bush encounter. And this is important because what we recognize then is that the space that Moses steps into may end up becoming a God space, but it wasn't originally a God space at the time that Moses brought his flock there. In fact, as we read this, we notice there is nothing of Moses' influence within this encounter at all. He didn't come here looking for this. He didn't cause this to happen. He didn't ask for this to happen. In fact, if we read this at face value, Moses didn't have a scooby-doo that this was about to take place. God made this happen. And God was in control of what happened. He shaped the boundaries. He was leading this moment. He was leading the actions within the moment and the conversation that ensued. This is God's moment here. 
Moses might have happened upon it, but God most certainly set it up. And we have to understand that we can't manufacture moments of glory with God. They happen and they are His moments. And we're having such moments as a church. When we sense the weight of His presence, the wonder of His glory, the movement of His Spirit. When that happens, we pause and we wait. And I know at times it can feel like we hang on and we hang on and we hang on. And I know it can feel like we push and we press. And I know that some might think that we're kind of milking it for all it's worth. But the point, and please hear the heart here. The point is not to try and whip something up or manufacture an outcome. But it's to recognize that we can't make these moments happen. So when they do, we want to honor them. We want to pause and give room. We want to press and hold on and let him set the boundaries and let him set the conversation and let him set the actions within such moments of glory because they are his moments. So we lean into the passage and we learn how to posture ourselves. Let's look at what happened. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush and Moses saw that the bush was on fire, but it didn't burn up. Now, again, we've mentioned this a lot. Whenever the Bible says the angel of the Lord as opposed to an angel of the Lord, we recognize that what's been referred to here is Jesus in the Old Testament. So that which Moses is encountering here is God. This is a manifestation of God's presence. And as it's described to us, what we find is the supernatural is layered within the natural. The angel of the Lord appears within fire. That's natural. The presence of fire within the wilderness around Horeb was not in itself supernatural, but rather quite a natural sight and occurrence. The fire containing the angel of the Lord is in a bush. Bushes were not supernatural, but they were very, very natural. In fact, in the wilderness landscape, they grew ten a penny. They were a common sight. However, what Moses describes as seeing is a bush that is on fire but not being consumed by the fire, and that is not natural. That is supernatural. So we have in this moment something profoundly supernatural that is layered within the natural. The presence of God found within the fire and contained within a bush, but the bush not being burnt by the fire that it contains. What we've got is supernatural, natural, natural, supernatural. And there's a couple of things that come out of this, a couple of pointers. And the first is this. Since the very beginning of time, God has been wrapping himself within the natural order of things. He chose a garden to be a place of divine exchange with the human race. He chooses to presence himself within the created and to walk in the cool of the day within a physical space that was itself filled with nature. He chose to inhabit the natural. He chose to tabernacle his glory in a tent. He could have stuck with pillars of fire and cloud or glory clouds on the top of mountaintops, but he chose a tent with altars that were made of stuff. He chose stuff, oil and, and incense to be burned, bread to be baked, aspects of nature to be sacrificed as a means of approaching his presence. He chose to wrap himself within the natural. And he comes to earth to reveal his identity and his reality, and he chooses to be born. He could have just turned up. That would have been pretty cool. He could have just 
manifested and appeared, but he chose to take a human form and he chose to be born the way of all flesh, but he chose a virgin conception. That's not natural. That's very supernatural. He took like a supernaturally natural route. He chose to layer the supernatural within the natural. Then he, he chose 12 disciples, ordinary guys to follow him, and he, he used nature and the natural to display his glory, like taking water and turning it to wine. Be quite up for seeing him do that again soon. Spitting in mud and slapping mud cakes in people's eyes. Using fish nets to pull in a miraculous catch and call disciples to himself. Taking a young boy's packed lunch and feeding the multitude and showcasing his glory. When he preached, he used stories. Some of his most profound ministry took place round tables sharing a meal. He was even baptized. Layering himself within the natural, he revealed God and he revealed his glory in such a way that we're still talking about it thousands of years later. In fact, we can go through the Bible and we can see from start to end this layering effect of God within the natural. We see it in the call to gather as a people to do and be this thing called church. It's weird, isn't it? But it's what we're called to do. We can see in the command to be baptized, to break bread together, to explore the word of God together, to care for and love one another. It's all really natural stuff, but it's laden with the supernatural in meaning and in experience and in origin. So we have to recognize that God's modus operandi is to wrap the supernatural within the natural and the natural within the supernatural. And that's important because all too often we can be desperately looking for a sign or a prophetic word or a picture or a vision or a revelation or a manifestation. When in actual fact, what we need to learn is to discern the supernatural ways in which God wraps himself up within the natural order around us and learn to see him in the ordinary, the everyday, the regular, the common sense, as well as learning to see him in the weird, the wonderful, the prophetic, and the spiritual. The other thing that we learn here is about hosting his presence. In this moment, we're told that the angel of the Lord appeared in flames of fire that were within a bush. There are two big things to highlight here. The bush was the structure that God inhabited. The flames of fire were the form that God inhabited. But those things were not of themselves. God. God was in and within those things. He was in the flames of fire that were contained within the bush. God chose the bush as the structure to host his presence and the flames of fire to be the form of his manifestation, but neither the structure nor the manifestation was God. He was within those. And we call it a couple of interesting things. God clearly uses structures and manifestations to reveal himself to us. God has no problem inhabiting manifestations and selecting particular structures to host his, pro his presence. God has no problems with these things, but sometimes we do. Sometimes we can get hung up with the structures that God chooses and the manifestations that he inhabits. And the truth is that's because as human beings, we have loads of opinions about stuff. And that's coming from probably one of the most opinionated people out there. People had opinions about John Wesley when he took a methodical approach to spirituality. 
but yet one that God breathed all over that brought souls to salvation and discipled many. People had hang-ups with William Booth when he decided to take a more regimented approach to the Christian faith, quite literally, and started a salvation army with brass bands and uniforms and military lingo. But God didn't seem to mind that. And he used it to rescue many people from addiction and poverty and social vices, and he used it to advance the gospel around the world. People had hang-ups when we moved from organs and hymns to guitars and choruses and Shine Jesus Shine. And to be honest, I still have issues with Shine Jesus Shine, but we'll move past that. <laughs> there are those who call out expressions of contemporary Christian worship as heresy and inappropriate and hype, but it would seem that God responds to the heart and isn't really that fussed about the style or the expression. People began to get annoyed when God moved at Faldi Brannan in Wales through prescribed prayers and spoken blessings. But lives were impacted by the weight of his glory and healing was manifested in life after life. The point is that sometimes we get hung up on structures, but God really doesn't. He uses and he chooses different structures at different times to host and facilitate his presence. And the same can be said for manifestations. He manifests in different ways at different times to different people and towards different groups of people. And all too quickly, we can form opinions and thoughts about structures and manifestations, what is right and what is wrong. Now, don't get me wrong. Everything should be weighed up and carefully considered against Scripture. And we shouldn't get silly about this stuff. And if I'm honest, sometimes with manifestations, we just get a bit silly and we shouldn't. But we shouldn't really become obsessed with this stuff either. Sometimes we become so obsessed with structures and manifestations that we lose sight of the God within those things. And if we're not too careful, we begin to build a faith that revolves around particular structures and particular manifestations of faith when in fact we're called to build our faith around Jesus. And if we're not careful, we become obsessed with structures and manifestations and what is right and what is wrong when in fact we're supposed to just be obsessed with Jesus. Remember, God was in the flames that were within the bush. He was in the manifestation that was within the structure, but those things of themselves were not Him. They were, he was within those things. And the really interesting thing is that we don't then find Moses spending the rest of his days setting bushes on fire to try and get aligned to God. We don't see that every time he wanted to communicate with God, he grabbed a can of petrol, a set of matches, and went out looking for the nearest bush. This is my mobile phone to God. And equally, God did meet with Moses in the burning bush. And he used that as a structure in the manifestation. But, but then there was this pillar of cloud that became a pillar of fire at night. And, and then there was these clouds on the top of mountains. And then there was thunder and lightning and fire that came out. And then there was a tabernacle. And then there was an Ark of the Covenant. It would seem that throughout Moses' lifetime, God inhabited various manifestations and structures and his interactions and encounters. And it would seem that Moses, a servant of his glory, had no problem adapting to what it was God was doing. And so must we got to be careful not to obsess with particular structures and manifestations and outworkings. God will choose manifestations and structures for his presence. And that's his choice because he's God. This is his gig. But we must learn to look for God in and within those things, but never make those things God. Let's not go around burning bushes every time we want to meet with God. Amen? So let's carry on. The angel of the Lord appeared in flames of fire. 
Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush doesn't burn up. When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. We're moving towards a close. God calls Moses' name as he sees Moses going over to investigate the bush that was alight but not consumed. And the calling of his name speaks so much. It personalizes the visitation. The glory of God, the, the person of Jesus in this moment, is for Moses. Although Moses happened upon this situation, God didn't happen upon Moses. God chose Moses. He chose to reveal himself to Moses. He inhabited that structure and that manifestation for Moses to impact and define Moses. And when God comes close, his manifestation is always with intention. He is not random with his revelations. He is specific. When he reveals his presence, when he reveals his voice, when he issues his commands, he does so with intentionality. He comes close with his presence because that is to be carried by us. He rises with his glory because that is to be hosted by us. He speaks to us his word because that's what's to be revealed to us. He calls and commands because that's the purpose that we have to run with. And by that, I don't just mean in a general sense that all his presence rises on us all. What I mean is that his presence comes close upon us because the way that he presences himself, that's what we have to carry as a people. The way his glory manifests upon us. That's what we have to run with and be shaped by. The revelation that he speaks to us specifically is a revelation he calls us to steward and to carry. The purpose that he gives to us as a people is ours to be our definition. There is always intentionality in his presence and we must position ourselves then every time he comes close, every time he comes near to understand his intentions, to make room to discern his intentions and to commit ourselves to serve those intentions like we sought to do today. He's coming close and we're going to step into intercession and serve his intention in that moment. And angels and glory comes to the room. God calls Moses and he calls his name twice. Moses, Moses. Repetition in the Bible denotes emphasis. We've said it before, but it's the same as putting the word in text in capital letters, bold font and underlining it for emphasis. And this call was about drawing Moses' attention. Moses went over to the bush that was on fire but not consumed. And God called his name to draw his attention from the bush that was on fire to the God who was within the fire. This was an adjusting of the lens. This was a focus moment. This was about shifting his vision and adjusting his eye lines so that he would see what it is he was meant to see. He wasn't meant to see a phenomenon and a strange sight. He was meant to see God. So God calls to him to adjust the lens. And we've been talking about this, but whenever God comes close and reveals glory, his presence always comes with vision. It involves a shifting of focus, a changing of the lens, a readjusting that normally changes mindset and brings a revelation beyond what is. What was for Moses was a bush that was on fire but not consumed. But what God did in calling him was to see beyond that and to see the God that inhabited that. 
So when he comes close, it's important that we allow God to shift the lens, adjust the focus, transform the vision, because without embracing this process, we can never see beyond the burning bush to the God who occupies it. And we can never discern the intentions of his heart. God calls to him, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. Let's bring this to land. Moses' response is just three words. But they reveal the posture necessary when God invades now moments with glory. Here I am. These three words speak of positioning, identity, and availability. God calls and Moses says, here I am. It's almost as though Moses is saying, if you're looking for me, I acknowledge my presence. I am here. Now, Moses could have turned and run from the freaky bush with its flames and shouting voices. He could have said, nope, not today. Thank you very much. I'm not into this nonsense. Moses, out. But he didn't. In the glory of God, he positioned himself as here, like in a roll call. He acknowledged that he was present. He positioned himself in the presence of God. Moses checked in and chose not to check out. He could have. He could have ran, but he says, no, I'm checking in. When God's presence comes close, when we find ourselves in a now moment and a suddenly of God, it's important that we check in and don't check out. That we position ourselves in the presence of God and inhabit the moment. The constant battle of our time and of our generation is to be present in the moment. It's one that I constantly struggle with. It's being present, intentionally present in the moment. Because I've got a phone and I've got loads of things to look at. And I've got doom scrolling to do. And, and it's so easy to be in the moment, but not intentionally inhabiting the moment. And the challenge is to inhabit the time and the space that we're in. God inhabited the space with Moses. And when Moses then chose to inhabit the same space as God, that's when transformation took place. The most powerful statement that we can make in the presence of God when he comes close is to say, here I am. I'm checking in. I check in my thoughts, my emotions, my resources, my heart, my will, my agenda. I choose to inhabit this moment with you. I position myself in your presence. As a people, we need to learn to check in, to tap in and not tap out, to position ourselves in his presence. Here I am is about positioning, but it's also about identity. In response to the call of God, he says, here I am. He says, I am here. I is personal. I is me. Moses responded with himself. And there's a vulnerability in acknowledging I am here. You see, Moses hadn't met God before. And that's seen from the fact that when God turns up in the bush, God has to introduce himself. By the way, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you haven't met someone, and when, you, when someone you haven't met before calls your name, and you say, that's me, there's actually a vulnerability in that. 
in identifying yourself to this unknown person, you know that in that instant, that person is looking at you, that person is seeing you, they're looking at what you look like, what you sound like, who you are as a person. To say, hey, here I am, I'm here, it's me. It's acknowledging your identity. And when we find ourselves in the suddenly moments of his presence, when God reveals himself in the now moments of life, it's important that we not only check in and inhabit the moment, but that we do so with all of ourselves. That we hold nothing back, that we bring our vulnerability and say, here is who I am. I bring my identity. I bring my me. This is me. This is who I am. And I check who I am into your presence and position myself fully in your presence. And what I think is amazing when you read this is that God calls Moses by name and then he introduces himself by name to Moses. He calls Moses, Moses, and then he says, by the way, here's who I am. When we bring the fullness of who we are, he brings the fullness of who he is. And the incredible thing is that he's not changed by our vulnerability. What we carry our flaws, our skeletons, our inner shame, and our outward pride, none of that impacts who he is. When we come and say, here's who I am, warts and all, it doesn't change him, and it doesn't impact him. But when we fully inhabit the space that he inhabits with his fullness, his person and identity will forever change our person and identity. And the most powerful statement that we can make in the presence of God when he comes closest to say, here I am. I position me and all of my fullness in your presence to encounter you and all your fullness. Here I am. It was about positioning, it was about identity, and lastly, it was about availability. He said, here I am. God, I am here. Moses could have stood there and said nothing. When his name was called, he could have stood there and thought, well, I'm not saying anything. I'm just going to wait and see what this freaky bush does next. I'm going to wait and see what the show is before I decide whether I'm going to take part in the show. He could have ignored them. To ignore someone is to not make time for someone. When someone calls or someone messages and you don't answer them, you ignore them and in ignoring them, you're calling out and you are choosing that you don't have time for that person or you're not available. But to answer is to acknowledge, regardless of what you're doing, you have availability. God called to Moses, and Moses didn't ignore him. He answered him. He responded to him, and he revealed his position and identity. He made himself available. He offered his presence and his identity to God, and in response, God envisioned him with purpose. He gave him mission. He gave him a mandate. He revealed his calling. He released him into destiny. God called, and Moses answered, here I am. He revealed his presence, his identity, and God transformed Moses' identity with his presence. The most powerful statement we can make in the presence of God is to tell him, here I am. It's not just to position yourself in God's presence and vulnerability, but it's to offer who you are and what you are, to present your availability, your will, your agenda, your everything to him. And when you do, he will give his everything to you. 
God hears the cries of hearts rising up within our city and within our nation. He is attentive to their cries and he attends their cries and in response he moves. He reveals glory and he displays power and he displays presence and we are living in a season in which God is coming close and revealing glory upon his people and revealing glory within his church. We are not alone in that but we can see that God is doing that and we cannot manufacture these moments. They are his moments but while we cannot manufacture them, we can learn to posture ourselves within them. When God comes close, when we discover God invading our now moments, we must look to see God within the structure and the manifestation. We must guard against becoming obsessed or fixated on structures and manifestations, but always fixate on the person of Jesus. Let me tell you, and we've said this loads, any ministry, any organization that fixates on structure and manifestation, run from it. Run towards anything that fixates on Christ. Run from anything that fixates on their ministry, their manifestation, and their structure. It has to be all about Him. We come before Him with the most powerful words that we can utter. Here I am. I choose to inhabit the space that you inhabit. I bring this fullness of who I am into the fullness of who you are. I am wholly available and bring my person and identity into an encounter with yours. When God turns up and reveals child, I am here, our greatest response is to say, God, here I am.